On this episode of Most Notorious, the deadly 1931 prison escape of the Leavenworth Seven. The hostages ran, and as they were running, the inmate hollered he's trying to get the gun, and the guy with the rifle run up behind him, hit him in the back of the head, and as the warden is falling backwards after getting hit in the head, the inmate unloads the shotgun on the warden and blows him in a ditch. Well, now they're thinking they've killed the warden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. A quick reminder, if you want to hear the show ad-free, go to patreon.com slash mostnotorious and become a patron. So many of you might remember my fairly recent interview with David Gran, who talked about the Osage murders. He also talked pretty extensively about Tom White, who not only helped solve the murders, but later in life took a job as warden at Leavenworth Prison, and during a pretty intense prison escape, he was wounded. This is that story, along with some fascinating history of one of the most storied prisons in American history, Leavenworth Penitentiary. So great to have as my guest today, Kenneth Lamaster. He is a retired correctional professional who worked at the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, the Kansas Penitentiary, and the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth. He's written numerous books and provided technical advisory work for television and documentaries. And he's here today to talk about his book called Leavenworth 7, The Deadly 1931 Prison Break. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. So tell us about your interest in Leavenworth prison history. How did it start? When I started work in 1983 at the federal prison at Leavenworth, we had a very good uh, training instructor by the name of Bobby Lawrence. And part of the training that you go through, it's a three-week course at the institution level, teaching you all about institution rules, regulations, and so forth. But they also include one part of the course includes the history of the institution and when they came across the 1931 prison break uh, my ears perked up and everything because they kept going on about how they uh, you know they smuggled weapons into the institution and they took the warden hostage and so on and so forth and from that day on I was hook line and sinker into the history of the institution the, the institution itself is construction started in 1895 and it's one of the most storied institutions in the in the United States. Everybody, you know, when you start talking about the Bureau of Prisons, everybody knows about Alcatraz. But before Alcatraz, there was Leavenworth. And we were the home of the, 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 the baddest of the bad and the worst of the worst. So it, it's, its storied history is just unbelievable when you start really digging into it. And I've, I've found over 30 books that are dedicated to the history of the institution in one form or another where it's mentioned former inmates, former staff, and so on and so forth. And, and it, it's, it's amazing. It, it really is to, to see what, how this institution started, 
how it progressed over the years and actually how it was before its time in a lot of correctional techniques. A lot of things that most institutions use in their daily routines now all derived from the federal prison at Leavenworth. Interesting. I know that before Robert Stroud was the birdman of Alcatraz, he was the birdman of Leavenworth, right? He was actually he was actually the birdman of Leavenworth. When he got to Alcatraz, he had no aviary at Alcatraz whatsoever. He was just in a cell by himself in the hospital wing because really truly when you start digging into that guy's history, you find out that most of the inmates in the institution really didn't care for him. He wasn't the the charismatic individual that he's portrayed in the movie as. If they hadn't have put him in prison when they did, he would have probably have been a legendary serial killer. Wow, crazy. <laughs> huh. Yeah, he had no remorse whatsoever over anything that that he did. So much of this story you're about to tell happened in 1931. By that year, the prison had existed for 35 or so years. Can, can you tell us a bit about the history of the prison itself and what life would have been like for an inmate in the early 1930s there? One of the things about institutional life anywhere in the United States in the early 1930s was because of the Mann Act, the, hist, uh, the Prohibition, and the Depression had placed such a strain on the correctional environment in that era, Leavenworth was originally built to house 1,500 inmates, and in it, most of the 1920s leading into the 1930s, the population of the institution was well over 3,000, and its highest point was 4,500. So you had inmates living on top of inmates. You had inmates that were working, say, 9 to 5 during the day. The inmates that were working midnight to 8 overnight in various jobs around the institution were actually sleeping in the cells that were vacant during the day shift. So you had two shifts of inmates sleeping in the same cell and you had inmates sleeping any and everywhere that they could find to sleep. And when you start looking at the demographics of the violence that was going on in America at that point in time with, you know, the Al Capones and, and other people of that era, well, it didn't stop once it got inside the walls. Violence was, was quite prevalent. The, there were so many people inside the institution and most institutions at the time that you couldn't find any, hardly anything for all of them to do. So that was one of the reasons why Robert Stroud had an aviary because you had other inmates in the institution that had dogs, you had cats, fish. They uh, had competitions for institution beautification where inmates planted these big elaborate gardens and kept the institution clean. And, and the prize for winning the contest was first at the movie or first for chow or, you know, something along that line. And, and getting to the chow part of it, they would open up the institution at 630 in the morning. They would start breakfast and breakfast would run until it was time to serve lunch and they would run lunch until it was time to serve dinner because they kept a steady progression of inmates going inside the dining room. They were feeding them. And as one group was leaving, the next group would come in. 
And, you know, you're in a dining room situation where the dining room is set up to feed 1,200 inmates. Well, if you've got 3,000 inmates inside the institution, then it, it's, it puts a strain on everything. It puts a strain on officers in the cell house. And you got to figure back then, the cell houses, if you've got 1,500, 3,000 inmates in an institution and you've only got 70 correctional officers, they're kind of outnumbered a little bit there. So it, it's, it puts a strain on the entire environment of the institution. Plus, you just can't watch everybody at one time and, and keep a good track on what's going on. I mean, try as you might. And, and, I mean, some of those guys were really good. Those correctional officers back then were tough. They were still the cutting edge of, of what we have today for correctional professionals. They had to be tough in order to survive. What made Leavenworth unique in the 20s and 30s as, as opposed to other American prisons? One of the things that was unique to Leavenworth is, is they had a history of taking the most troubled inmates and dealing with them. When I say something like that, I always have to tell people, it's not like what you see in Hollywood. Correctional officers are not the knuckle-draggers, the, the stick-wielding individuals that just do nothing but thump inmates all day long. That's not their job, and that's, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and say that didn't exist, because it did. But when you start getting into the 1920s and 1930s, the direction of corrections was, was changing at that time frame. They realized that you couldn't punish, you, you couldn't beat an inmate and keep him down and expect the best out of him. So they started doing, you know, started working programs, educating inmates. They started doing all types of training for inmates from plumbing to wiring to HVAC. You had uh, federal prison industries that was making shoes for and boots for the military, furniture for the military. You also had the, the programs, as I described before, the contest and, and stuff like that. You had an inmate-ran newspaper called The New Era that was published every week. So, I mean, it was one of those that, that if you occupy an individual's time with a constructive way, then you hopefully do some type of habilitation. You know, rehabilitation sometimes is the most overused word in corrections ever, where, you know, the definition of rehabilitation is, is to put something back in its original form. Well, if it's been a criminal ever since it was a toddler, you're not really accomplishing a whole heck of a lot. And there's people that I've come across that, they have been criminals the vast majority of their life, starting in early childhood all the way to adulthood. And habilitative measures, you know, you're trying to teach an individual to change over what he's known for our, the entire existence into a constructive human being. And, and, you know, back then they even had organizations coming in. When Jack Johnson was there in the early 1920s, the famous boxer, he held boxing matches taught people how to box. He ran a recreational area. You had different speakers that came in to talk to the institution, and you had baseball teams coming in, playing against the inmate teams. There's documentation that teams like the Chicago White Sox came in and played an inmate all-star team. So it, it was all about programming. It was all about trying to teach people. It was trying to teach the basics to get along in life. And it wasn't the... They, they beat them up, smack them down, crack them over the head type of environment. And in fact, when you go back and you take a look at the writings of Carl Panzram, the serial killer, 
He even stated that if he'd have been treated in other prisons like he was treated in Leavenworth, he may have turned out different. So the physical layout of the prison itself, the buildings, is there anything about that facility that made it stand out compared to other prisons? One of the attorney generals in its early construction came to the institution. He was in a in a total dismay over how this institution was being built. The central hallway itself, it's a rotunda. It looks like the Capitol building of any state or, you know, even the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. It's got a terrazzo floor. There were marble walls, granite and limestone pillars. It's a grandiose-looking institution on the inside that, that most of the taxpayers now would look at it and go, wow, you know, <laughs> did we have to spend this much money? Because you couldn't build this institution today in its present form. For and I mean, there's estimates that the original institution cost approximately a million dollars to build because they used inmate labor. Well, if you even used inmate labor today to build an institution like this, it'd probably be a billion dollars or more. Wow. So who were the Leavenworth Seven? The Leavenworth Seven was a group of individuals, the vast majority of them, were from the Oklahoma Territory, and they were part of the Al Spencer gang. Al Spencer was a Oklahoma outlaw that kind of fashioned himself and thought of himself as the modern-day Jesse James in that era. The only problem with Al Spencer was is, is he really didn't have the notoriety of Jesse James. The Oklahoma newspapers, while they kind of kept track of his exploits, they also kind of made fun of him because he uh, was robbing places, but he was only getting $10 here, $10 there. You know, One story I read was is that he actually uh, robbed a place and got less than $2 out of it. So he forms this friendship with another Oklahoma outlaw by the name of Frank Nash. Frank Nash is most notable to most people, most historians, as being the man that was killed at the Union Station Massacre in 1934. Well, Frank Nash's origins are, he was born in Bird's Eye, Indiana, and he moves to Oklahoma with his dad. His dad runs a hotel in Bartlesville. Well, he grows up in a hotel business. It gives him the ability to talk to people rather openly. He becomes friends with just about everybody he knows, and he spends four terms in the McAllister Penitentiary because of robberies, murders. During one term, he was there. The United States broke into World War One, and they offered him an opportunity to serve in the war and gave him a full pardon if he survived. He got out of the institution that way. The next time he, he comes back after World War One, gets in trouble again, he gets into the institution, and he pretty much basically tells the warden, he says, hey, I've got this business i got to take care of. Can I get a leave of absence? They put him on a leave of absence. He never comes back. He literally has got the ability to talk his way out of the institution. Well, he becomes friends with Al Spencer, and he becomes Al Spencer's chief lieutenant. Because one of the things that Frank Nash could do was he would meticulously plot all of the robberies that he was involved in to even actually going out and running the roads to make sure that the escape routes were there, that if one was cut off, they could find another one without having to do anything on the fly. So he becomes Al Spencer's chief 
lieutenant, but Al Spencer really wants to do something that'll put his name out there, that'll make him the Jesse James of the 1920s. And they plot this train robbery at a little train stop. It's a whistle stop in Okisa, Oklahoma. It's the Katy Limited from the MKT Railroad. And they plot this robbery, and during the course of the robbery, or even leading up to the robbery, Frank Nash kept telling these guys, take all the money, but leave the government bonds alone. We can talk our way out of McAllister, but we can't talk our way out of Leavenworth. So the night of the robbery, they set it up. They get the train to the whistle stop coming out of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. The first whistle stop is Okisa. They stop, let a guy off the train. They board the train, and within minutes, they've already taken over the cab of the train. They've taken over several other areas on the train. They take the, you know, like you've seen in a lot of movies that deal with bank robbery or train robberies, they disengage the uh, cab of the, tra- the train, the locomotive part from the actual train, so they don't have a way to escape, and it gives them time to get away once the robbery's over with. Well, they get their way into the mail portion of the train, and Al Spencer decides that I'm going to take it all. So he takes the federal bonds. Now it becomes a federal case. Well, over the next course of the next couple of days, that's being investigated from everybody from U.S. Marshals to local law enforcement, and they start picking these guys up. Well, Al Spencer, just so everybody knows that, that he is the legend that he wants to be, had actually started telling people, hey, you know what? We're going to pull this train robbery off in the Okisa whistle stop. And the morning after the, the train robbery, the hillside was literally littered with cigarette butts and, and remnants of people that had actually sat on the hillside adjacent to the robbery to watch it. And all of these people start coming forward saying, yeah, hey, you know, Al Spencer is the guy that pulled us off. So they start picking up all of Al Spencer's crew and they send them all to Leavenworth. Frank Nash included. Nash had actually escaped across the border into Mexico and married a woman there and had him backdate the marriage certificate to give him an alibi. Well, Nash was the last one captured, and they finally talked him across the Rio Grande where they got him. U.S. Marshals picked him up and sent him to Leavenworth. Well, once Nash gets to Leavenworth, he's starting to talk. He starts talking to people and, you know, becomes this model inmate. In the meantime, right after the robbery, Al Spencer shot dead, and they find a lot of the bonds, so that's evidence against them. Nash gets to Leavenworth, and he starts talking to everybody, and he sort of gets in with one of the deputy wardens. He's moved from the regular kitchen facility to the hospital kitchen, where he becomes the main hospital cook, because that was part of his growing up in a hotel. He was a cook. Well, as a part-time job, he becomes the cook in the deputy warden's residence outside the walls of the institution. He's given a trustee's pass. His assistant cook at the deputy warden's house is a guy that a lot of people may have heard of, uh, Frank Nitty, Al Capone's right-hand man, is, the, is his assistant out at the deputy warden's house. Well, one afternoon, after you know everything's done inside the institution, he walks to the front gate with his trustee's pass, tells the guard at the trustee at the gate, I've got a dinner to cook for the deputy warden. They let him out around 4 o'clock, and it's getting on to about 9 o'clock, 
and they call the deputy warden's residence and say, hey, Frank Nash is needed back over here before 10 o'clock because of the 10 o'clock count. And the deputy warden tells him at that point in time, Frank Nash hadn't been here all night. So he literally just walked out the front door of the institution on a trustee's pass. And it, it, it's kind of one of those things that, that wasn't really an uncommon thing at that point in time. You had a warden by the name of W.I. Biddle, who was pretty much basically a local state representative's campaign manager. And for being a good campaign manager and getting his man elected seven straight times to the House of Representatives, he winds up, you know, with a politically based job as the warden at Leavenworth. And while there were some good things he did, there were some things that, that were kind of sketchy, kind of not on the up and up. So they opened up an investigation on Leavenworth after they had come across the Atlanta prison debacle where Warden Sartain actually wound up spending time in his own prison down in Atlanta because he was on the take. He was being paid by gangsters that were sentenced to Atlanta. They were actually sleeping downtown in hotels, throwing big elaborate parties, providing the warden with money and showgirls uh, for companionship. And that all finally got broke up, and the warden went to prison. It kind of gives you a profile of the 1920s that it, it's just kind of a rough-and-tumble time in our history, not only for the gangsters that are running around out on the communities and, and across the country, but it's also a hard time for correctional people inside the institutions. You know, when the average correctional officer is making $1,700 a year, and you've got a gangster you know, hey, I'll give you $10,000 if you help me get out of the institution. Well, $10,000 goes a long way in the 1920s, particularly during the Depression. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what, what happened next to Frank Nash? Well, Nash actually gets out of prison, and he hooks up with different individuals. He hooks up with Machine Gun Kelly. He hooks up with uh, the Maul Barker gang, pulls off robberies for them, and is masterminding robberies for them, masterminding. He, he pretty much basically hired himself out to help people determine escape routes and set up robberies all over the United States. And he actually is out from, I think it's 1928 to 1934, when they were returning him back to the facility when he got killed at Union Station. Well, before he leaves, they had put into motion this escape plan that uh, would ultimately take five years to pull off. And they had Machine Gun Kelly being the middle-class individual that was sort of quasi-college educated. He didn't make much out of college. I think he was only in college like one year. He's inside the institution on a charge of introducing alcohol to an Indian reservation and they got him working in the records room. Well, he is the guy that they actually find out. They let Machine Gun Kelly out for good behavior after two years. And once he's gone, they find out that he was the guy that was dummying the uh, trustees' passes. And the, warden, the deputy warden that was signing them was blindsiding and signing them. So you had not only Nash walk out of the institution – but you had two individuals by the name of uh, Thomas James Holden and Francis Keating who had been sent to Leavenworth for robbing the Grand Trunk Railroad mail car of $135,000 in Illinois, and they had actually got away with it for two years. 
And it was a second robbery of the Grand Trunk Railroad mail car that was pulled off in exactly the same fashion as the Keating Holden robbery that actually got them caught. So they get sent to Leavenworth, get to be friends with Frank Nash, start buddying up with him, Machine Gun Kelly. So they got them some dummy passes too, trustees passes, to go to work outside the walls of the institution. They get outside the walls of the institution one day and just literally walk off. They found their prison uniforms at the edge of an apple orchard. So now you've got Nash, Keating, and Holden on the outside, and you've got Nash's crew inside the institution. So they're now working on getting them out. And the plot, like I said, it took literally five years in order to get this plot totally put together and masterminded and... You know, when you've got 3,500 inmates, 4,000 inmates inside an institution, and you can't keep track of them, you know, it's it's pretty interesting how they pulled us off, given the fact that it took them five years to actually get everything put together so it would work. So why did the planning take so long? Like a lot of other things that go inside of institutions, the inmates had originally started the plan started having doubts about other inmates, so they cut them out of the escape plan, added new inmates along the line, plus they had a correctional officer that they were paying a dollar a letter, either in or out, to go out of the institution, and the planning stages took forever because they were trying to find a way to get weapons smuggled inside the institution, and they once they finally figured it out, it was going through the game plan of figuring out what, you know, where do they buy the items that we need in order to smuggle the weapons inside the institution inside of those? Once they figured that out, they, they had to figure out where they were going to buy the guns. They bought the guns and, you know, put it all into motion and sent it inside the institution. And once it was in the institution, the escape was on in three days. The escape happens on December 11th, 1931. Yep. Can you tell us about that day? Uh, how it began? They It began like every other day. Leavenworth at that point in time had experienced a lot of rain over the course of the month leading up to that day, and everything was freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. It was cold, typical Midwestern Kansas day, and the inmates are wakened up at, or woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. They started getting ready for work cleaning up their cells, getting things put where they're supposed to be, and they start breakfast. Inmates go down to breakfast, they eat breakfast. And back then, they used to march inmates to work. The work supervisors would pick up their crew in the dining room and actually march them in a military-style formation to work. They pick up their crews, they start out to work, they get to work at around 9 o'clock in the morning, and as soon as they get to work is when the, the, the whole plan of... of going out that day gets to going. One of the most unsettled times in an institution is when you have a large movement going on at the time. And if you've got 3,000 inmates running around the institution, going to work, going back, the crew that's going to work is relieving the crew that's been at work. So you've got those guys going back and forth. You've got a lot of feeding going on, a lot of movement. So they could move about the institution a little bit unnoticed at that point in time. Plus, given the fact that a lot of those guys worked jobs to where they could move about anyway freely between shops. You had a guy that one of the guys worked a plumbing shop, one of the guys worked a carpenter shop, one of the guys worked a laundry. 
couple of the guys worked in the prison factory. And at that point in time, they were building the east wing of the prison factory. It was under construction. And the construction crew that was working on the east wing of the institution was actually sleeping in the basement of the building overnight. So they're not only working on the building, but they're sleeping in the construction site. So they've got access to anything and everything inside the building overnight, pretty much basically undetected. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. A perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. So what were the names of the Leavenworth Seven? The inmates included the relatively newest comer to the group, actually got to the institution a month before the escape occurred. And he was recommended as a steady getaway driver. His name was Charlie Berta. The other group included a guy by the name of Will Green, Thomas Underwood, Earl Thayer, Stanley Brown, George Curtis, and Grover C. Durrell. And five out of the seven, part of the Al Spencer gang. Charlie Berta being the, the most recent was not. And Stanley Brown wasn't a member of, of the group either. He was a upper Midwest, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota bank robber that, that really was one of the funniest things I've ever seen is I, I pulled up Stanley Brown's inmate file down at the National Archives in Kansas City, and on the front page of his inmate file, somebody had written, moron. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take it that he was probably not the smartest individual on the planet, but... I, I kind of found that a little bit interesting that I don't know if you could get away with that now or not. <laughs> but they had procured and wrote dummy passes. They had got a hold of a couple of institutional passes that got them to the rear quarter, what we call the rear quarter of the institution. If you ever see pictures of Leavenworth, you see the front of the institution. The administration building is in the center. That's where the long, big 43-step staircase goes up to is the front end of the institution is the administration building two of the larger cell houses are off to the left and right of there and then radiating off at 45 degree angles of the smaller cell houses and then there's a long corridor that goes from the rotunda back towards the dining room and the uh, movie theater area that we call center hall and then the rear corridor is the actual corridor area that you can go into the dining room, you can go into the theater, you can go to the west side of the institution through an open door, or you can go through the east door to the east side of the institution, and you have an officer stationed there that operates the doors going to that area. And it, He had actually been stationed there in 1931, and Gates put up there in mid-1931. They had found a weapon inside the institution, and the warden, Thomas B. White, had decided, you know, we're going to start monitoring inmate traffic coming through the rear quarter, so they actually put doors up at the rear quarter and actually put uh, an officer back there to operate the doors in and out. And his job was to, he, he would bring an inmate in, he would pat search them down and send them on their way to wherever they were going. Back in that era, inmates couldn't tra- traverse the main corridor. They went out what they called the fire escape doors of the cell houses, and that was outside in the courtyards of the institution where inmates going to appointments inside the administration building would be let in through the rear quarter. So that's why they would need passes. 
Well, two of the inmates walk up to the rear quarter officer with the fake passes, give them to the officer. The officer lets them inside the rear quarter. As soon as he opens the door, Grover C. Durrell pushes a pistol in his side and tells him to back up or I'll shoot you. Well, the other inmate has got a weapon with him. Here comes the other five inmates. They have got weapons to include uh, six pistols, a .30-06 rifle, 17 sticks of dynamite, over 100 blasting caps, over 100 feet of blasting cord, and they've got a, about 100 rounds of ammunition for each weapon. And they also have a 16-gauge, what they call a, a burglar shotgun. And I looked up what a burglar shotgun was because I'd never seen or heard of what, never seen a picture of one. And they were actually used, they were designed for truck drivers because a lot of truck hijackings were going on back in that era. So they designed a shotgun that is a double-barrel shotgun. It's a breech loader that has a pistol grip handle on the back, and the barrels are probably from the breech to the end of the barrel is probably 10 inches. It's a close-quarter weapon that they also have in their possession. Well, they take the officer hostage at the rear quarter, and march him up the main hallway. They get him up to the warden's office entrance, and every day, Warden Thomas B. White, at 9 o'clock, would have meetings with inmates. He would sit down and, and listen to inmates talk about their complaints to the institution, uh, different things that they wanted to discuss with the warden. They could get a pass and come talk to the warden between 9 and, if I remember right, it's like 9 and 11 in the morning. Well, that particular morning, the inmate that is sitting talking to the warden is Fred Barker, Maul Barker's boy. And here you have seven inmates now coming into the outer warden's office. They take uh, a couple of civilian typewriter repairmen and a typewriter salesman hostage. They take all of the inmates working in the warden's office hostage. They take the chief clerk hostage. Well, at this point in time, Warden White hears the commotion going on out in the outer office kind of has an idea of what is going on because, of course, rumor mill is that they've got escapes that are going to happen. They just don't know when. Well, Warden White takes his keys, his car keys, out of his pocket, and he throws them under his desk. The inmates come into the warden's office with guns and order him and Fred Barker out into the front end of the warden's office. They start forming up, getting everybody there. They had a total of 11 hostages. They march to the front gate of the institution, the officer, officer by the name of Dempsey, is standing up there. He's an older officer, has been with the institution for quite some time. One of the inmates tells him, open the front gate. Dempsey tells him there's only one man in the institution that could order me to open this front gate, and that's the warden. Stanley Brown, being the individual that he is, steps up with a, a stick of dynamite, lights a match, and he says, you don't open that front gate, I'll blow us all to hell. Dempsey looks at the Inmate standing there, all of the hostages, and he tells the inmate to his face, he says, well, I'm an old man, I've lived a long life, I guess we'll see each other in hell. And the warden, realizing that, hey, you know, if they blow up the front end of the institution, this could lead to a bigger escape. So he walks up front and he tells him, he says, look, just go ahead and open the door, let's go the safe route. So they get out, to, they start out the front door of the institution. They get out the front door, they take Dempsey, so now they have 12 hostages, they take his keys and they lock the front door of the institution. 
Well, that presents a problem for anybody trying to get out of the institution because now they got the keys to the door. They start out down the steps and the officers, there was two officers on one tower, which is the tower that sits right out in front of the stairwell of the institution. They start out down the steps. Those officers realize what's going on because they see the guns and everything. They pull off, one of them jumps up and pulls the tarp off of a 1917 Browning belt-fed machine gun. And the other one takes up a rifle. And the warden again steps up and says, hey, let's stop and think about this. Nobody's got hurt up to this point. Let's let it play out. They get down to the bottom of the stairs. The inmates, uh, the seven inmates, kick 11 of the hostages loose. And they grab the warden and they start across the grounds of the institution towards the warden's residence, which is right out front on the east side of the front lawn. They're running across the property, and as they're running across the property, the armory officer opens up fire on the escapees, and the escapees actually, one of them stops and tells him, you know, I got this, go ahead. Well, once again, White, being the calm, cool, and collected individual he was, realizing that, you know, there's houses across the street, there's people walking up and down the sidewalks out front of the institution, shooting guns is probably not where we want to be, so he gets them to stop. They get to the warden's house. The warden's wife, Bessie, realizes what is going on. The inmate chauffeur is inside working as a butler inside the, the warden's house. They all pile in the warden's Buick, which was a huge car at the time, and ask the warden, where's, where's your keys? Well, they're in my office. Well, this is where, this is where the escape starts going downhill from, from the word go. They pile out of the warden's car grab him, and they start out towards the road that runs in front of the institution is Metropolitan Avenue. They start running out towards Metropolitan Avenue to a bus stop, and as soon as they start running out towards the bus stop, a bus stops in front of the institution and is unloading and loading passengers. Well, their first thought was, is, is hey, we're going to commandeer a bus. They're running out towards the road when they notice that a, a car is traveling from the west going east, they decide, well, we're going to take this car. So they jump the car out in front of the institution, which is loaded with uh, Buffalo soldiers coming back from a rabbit hunt. At gunpoint, they force all these soldiers out of the front seat of the, or out of the car. And now they've got a car. Now they have more weapons and ammo because they had guns in the car. They spin the car around and start heading west. Well, Charlie Bird is at the wheel. He turns around and looks at the warden and says, hey, what's the fastest way out of here? And the warden told him, said, if you follow the road to the right, you'll be in Atchison, Kansas at about 20, 30 minutes. You can go across the bridge into Missouri, be on the back roads, and gone before we get anything organized. And Charlie Berta, being you know, the smart individual he was, decided that the warden was lying. So instead of taking the road to the right, he took the road to the left. When he took the road to the left, he went from a paved road to a mud road. Well, given all of the freezing and thawing and the rain and everything that had gone on for the previous month, he slides the car off the road into a ditch. So now they have to abandon this car because they've literally turned it over in the ditch. They're out of the car, running up the road, and... 
by this time, the powerhouse whistle is going off, telling everybody that there's an escape going on. The officers that are not on duty are now, once the powerhouse whistle goes off, that tells you that something's going on at the institution. You need to get to the institution immediately. They see a car coming up the road, and it's an officer reporting to the institution. They overtake his car, throw him out of the car. Well, there's seven inmates, one warden. There's enough room for five people in the car. So they get the car loaded down, and the rest of them are riding the running boards on the side of the car. They turn the car around, head out towards a county road, and it's all muddy. The car is dragging the ground as it's going because it's sinking into the mud. It's not making any type of speed whatsoever. Well, as they get out this county road, they come up to an old one-room schoolhouse. It's called a Possum Hollow School locally, and they decide that they're going to take the teacher's car sitting out front. Two of them run into the schoolhouse. Well, all of a sudden, you know, you got a whole school full of kids. They're terrorized and crying, screaming. They tell them all to shut up and sit down. They ain't going to hurt them. The teacher's at the head of the class. One of them runs up to the desk, grabs her purse. Give me the keys to that car. The teacher looks at him and says, give me my purse back. Well, for a couple of minutes, they're arguing over keys and purses. And finally, the inmate that was handling this purse tells her, says, look, you give me the keys to the car, I'll give you your purse. So they come to a, a, a agreement on the barter system, I guess. They get the keys to the car, go out the front door of the schoolhouse. Half of them jump in the teacher's car, put the key in the ignition. The car won't start. Well, the teacher failed to tell them that she had been having ignition problems with the car and had had a uh, button installed underneath the dash to make it a push-button start. So now they're scared to death that they're going to get caught. You know, posses are starting to form and, and people are starting to trail them. So they jump out of that car, jump back into the officer's car, make tracks down the road. Well, they get about three miles down the road. And they, what they think is a road is actually the back road to a farmhouse. They turn onto this road and they immediately bury the car all the way up to the axles and comes to a screaming stop. And once they get it to a screaming stop, they all abandon the car, start running to the closest farmhouse. And there you have Rose Hass and her family. She's home from school because she had her appendix taken out a couple of weeks prior to that. Her brother and younger sister are in the house, along with her father, and the inmates get into the house and start tearing up the house looking for a phone, and they're trying to tell them, look, we don't have a phone, well, where's your car? We don't have a, fo- we don't have a car, we're just a poor farm family living out here in the sticks. We don't have any of that. Well, after about a good 10, 15 minutes of tearing the house up, they decide, well, you know, they're telling the truth. Well, they take them hostage. They march them to the next farmhouse, which is about a mile and a quarter away. Well, while they're walking through the woods trying to get to this house, they've got airplanes flying overhead. All around them, they can see posse members tracking them. So they know they're being, they know they're close to being tracked out. And they make it across this field into the next farmer's house and ask the farmer, where's his phone? He's, well, we don't have a phone. And, and, you know, they start, you know, where's your car? Well, we don't have a car either. And they're going on. Airplanes are flying over their, over the house. And they're looking out the windows and they're seeing people progress across the field. 
And at this point in time, I mean, you're you're talking, you know, what's taken me minutes to describe is actually turning into hours. This is a couple of hours down the down the road from the initial, you know, once once the escape started, and they're all getting nervous and wanting to get out of there. So they take a man and his wife and one of the farmhands hostage and go out towards the road. Well, luck would have it, they get out to the road, which this road is paved. They look up, and here comes this car down the road. Well, it's a coupe, and back then, a coupe was basically a two-seater sedan with what they called a rumble seat in the back. So you're only going to get four people in this car. So they get the car stopped, and what it is, it's a couple of sightseers. It's three kids that have gone out to see what they could see going on with this big prison escape going on. So they get the car away from them and tell them to beat feet down the road and don't look back. Well, as they're going down the road, one of the, they're telling the three of the inmates, hey, you need to shake out and find another way to meet up with us and you know where we're going to meet. We'll wish you the best. Well, when they had started out to find another car, one of the inmates looked up and noticed that the kids were looking back down the road and he raised a .30-06 rifle up and pointed it to him. And the warden took that opportunity to tell the hostages to run. And he grabbed one of the shotguns that one of the other inmates had got from the Buffalo Soldiers car and started fighting over the shotgun. The hostages ran. And as they were running, the inmate hollered he's trying to get the gun. And the guy with the rifle run up behind him, hit him in the back of the head. And as the warden is falling backwards after getting hit in the head, the inmate unloads the shotgun on the warden and blows him in a ditch. Well, now they're thinking they've killed the warden. They see all these hostage or, or all these posse members heading in their direction. They got to get out of there, and they got to get out of there now. So four of them jump in. You know, three of the inmate, there are four of the inmates and the warden jump on this coop, head up the road. Well, as they start up the road, here comes the warden sedan from the opposite direction. Warden chauffeur driving it. They've got a deputy warden inside the car. They've got a couple of officers. Well, the inmates jump out of the car and start firing up the road. The officers jump out of the car and open up, and there's a gun battle in the middle of this, this county road, county highway, that involves the inmates and their weapons, and the officers are wielding 45 caliber Thompson submachine guns, and then a Leavenworth County Sheriff breaks into the, the fray with another Thompson submachine gun, opens up fire on the car, and the inmates jump back in the car, take off. Well, the first thing they think of is they're going to take a left to get away from this group, thinking it's another road. Well, it's another farmhouse driveway. And just like all the other farmhouse driveways, they hit this farmhouse driveway and bury the car up to the axles and uh, undercarriage in mud, they jump out of the car, grab the warden, start up towards his house, and as they're starting up towards the house, the oldest of the inmates decided that, hey, you know what, we're not going to be able to make it out of this situation alive if we get up there in that house. And one of the inmates made the comment, he said, well, you know, our plan is we're not going back to prison. And he says, well, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to cut out on my own. I don't want to leave you guys in a lurch, but I'm not going inside that house and staying there. So Earl Thayer, the oldest of the inmates, 
goes inside the house where there's a 73-year-old farmer by the name of Emerson Salisbury. He sees them coming. He comes out on the front porch and said, y'all out for all out hunting? And one of them hollered, no, we're the hunted. Forced him back in the house. Well, Earl Thayer goes through the house, goes out a back window, and he actually mingles with the posse. And at one point in time, they even say that they think that, you know, several of the posse members keep saying that, you know, once the gun battle started, that he was actually even firing uh, the rifle into the house. Well, here you've got in what is estimated at anywhere from 500 to 1,000 posse members to include two companies of military soldiers outside this house, shooting tear gas bombs, shooting into the house. They're shooting this house all to pieces. And two of the groups of soldiers were uh, machi a machine gun crew. They're firing uh, 1917 uh, water-cooled belt-fed machine guns into the house. So, I mean, they're literally just blowing this house all to pieces. Well, Emerson Salisbury gets away from the inmates, gets up into the attic, and starts waving a white handkerchief, and they started shooting at him. So he finally decided it was time for him to go, and I'm not exactly sure how they, when they described it in the report, he slides down a chute that leads to the front door, and he actually gets out the front door of the house, and they recognize that he's the hostage, so they know that the inmates are in there by themselves. Well, this gun battle had gone on for almost three hours. And they decided that, you know, after about a few minutes of no shots fired, a local resident armed with a 45 caliber handgun breaks open the front door, makes his way upstairs where he finds the body of all three inmates. And according to the coroner's report from that day, one died from a gunshot wound to the back, the back right of his head. The other one died of a gunshot wound to the back left of his head, and the other one suffered a gunshot wound to the temple. So basically what it turned into was is, is one guy shot two of them in the back of the head, the other one shot himself, or he, and then he shot himself. So now you have three dead inmates in this house. One's on the run. you got the three others that are trying to find a way to get out of, get out of town. They come across two horses jump on the horses, the horses buck them off in the middle of the field. So now they're cutting out across the field, trying to hide from airplanes over their head. They're finally spotted. Well, a company of uh, mounted cavalry and mounted correctional officers confront them and tell them, get up out of the ditch, let's go. One of them comes up, and as he's coming up, he's lighting a stick of dynamite. And the off, a captain and an officer shoot him at the same time and lay him out in a ditch. They didn't kill him. Well, come to find out, these guys had made a suicide pact. So they were not going back to the institution, no matter what. Well, they got the inmates up out of the ditch. They made them bring the guy up that they shot, drug him out of the ditch. And they actually made him, <laughs> they made him walk uh, all the way back to the institution to include the guy that was shot. So they get back to the institution, get them into the lockup area, the segregation area is what we call it now. They take them back there, and one of the guys is getting put in a cell, and he reaches in his coat, pulls out a stick of dynamite, and he tells them, hey, I don't think I'll be needing this anymore. And, I mean, it was, it was now you've got three that are captured, three that are dead, and one still on the loose. Well, if you've ever seen and read the story of Bonnie and Clyde after the shooting of Bonnie and Clyde 
the mass hysteria that was going on in the town, people trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. They were grabbing pieces of Bonnie Parker's hair and, and pulling it out of her head and just trying to take any type of, of souvenir that they could. Well, the crowd that had formed out on the highway to watch the shootout all converged on the Emerson Salisbury house. And Rose Hass, who had been one of the hostages taken from the farm, the first farmhouse they came to, she's 16 years old at the time. And I've got a tape of her actual statement where she talks about they converged on the house. And as she got to the house, she said she got inside the house in time to see the inmates being drug out of the second floor. And she describes as they're dragging them down the stairs, their head bouncing off the floor or down the stairs. And they throw them out in the front yard like they're throwing the trash out. And the onlookers start literally, you know, if it's not bad enough, your house has done been shot up by 500 to 1,000 people. Now you've got onlookers and sightseers that are upstairs dipping their the handkerchiefs in the, the inmates' blood. They're starting to tear pieces of the furniture apart and walk out of the house with, you know, stuff with bullet holes in it and, and stuff like that. It was just, you know, back then there wasn't a such thing as CSI, and they didn't cordon off the area. Just anybody, any person could just walk through the area. Wow, nuts. Were there adjustments made at the prison after the escape? Oh, yeah. The, the, the whole demographics of that system changed. They put up two additional grills around these warden's administration building. Now inmates don't have access to anything from the front end of the institution at all. They, they built a control center inside the institution, which is enclosed. The officer can work in a secure area without having to. Back when White was taken hostage, they, would, they had guys that operated the front gate and an inner gate. There was only two gates there, and they would open the doors. They would open one door, lock it. Once you came in, go unlock the other one, let you in, etc., back and forth all day. Well, that changed. They went to electric slot. They, they went to doors to where there was three gates instead of two. They One of the most principal things that they did was is, is the Bureau adopted a policy that if you're taken hostage, you lose all authority whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether you're the newest correctional officer all the way up to the warden, deputy wardens. If the regional administrator or bureau chief was there, they have no authority. They can't tell you to open the doors. They can't, you know, give orders. They can't do anything. And one of the standing orders inside the institution is, is if somebody approaches the third grill demanding out with a hostage, if you don't think you can take the situation of standing there watching that whole thing develop, if you can't take, if you, if you think you just can't stand there without, you know, becoming sympathetic to the hostage, then what the, your order is is to walk away. Walk to the back end of the control center where you can't see it. But under no circumstances are you to open any doors to facilitate an escape. So how about you? Uh, in your time in corrections, did you ever meet any notorious criminals? <laughs> I've met a few. One of the first inmates that I ever encountered at the federal prison at Leavenworth was Russell Buffalino. And being a young correctional officer, I'm sitting inside a cell house one day getting ready to break the unit out for lunch. 
and Mr. Buffalino and, and several of his cronies are standing there about the front end of the cell house waiting to be opened up. And Buffalino's kind of standing there, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I ask him, I said, so, Mr. Buffalino, what did you do with Jimmy Hoffa? Well, all of a sudden, his cronies pop up, and they're like, oh, my God, you can't ask the old man that. And I was like, well, it's a little too late. I think I already asked him. And they were <laughs> they were all standing there, and Buffalino didn't, didn't flinch. Well, they tell me to send a unit to Chow. I open up the door, and as I'm standing there by the door, Buffalino walks past me, grabs me by the arm, and jerks me over to him. And he leans in and he sits there and he says, we cremated that son of a bitch alive. And turned around and walked out the door. Holy crumbs. I said, mystery solved. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then uh, for the longest time, and I'm sure a lot of your followers and stuff have seen the movie Point Break, the part that's played by Patrick Swayze in the movie depicts a individual by the name of Patty Mitchell. He was a Canadian bank robber that he was born in Canada, but he robbed banks in the United States. It's his crew that they depict in the movie. And Patty Mitchell worked for me as a clerk inside the institution and talked about his exploits and how he escaped several times from federal prison and and everything and talked about, you know, he said the movie Point Break was kind of great entertainment and kind of followed the story a little bit well, but that's when he decided to write his own memoirs and it's out there for sale. He's dead now. He died of cancer in Springfield. But uh, another one of the uh, more infamous people that I've met was John Stanfa. John Stanfa worked for me for probably a good seven years and we'd often converse and, and talk and stuff and He'd tell the inmates different things and leave them, you know, leave it alone. Do what you're supposed to do. The mafia has has their own way of doing things, and we had a little bit of a difficulty with an inmate one night inside uh, where we were working. And he turned around and looked at me, and I mean, John Stanfis, Sicilian through and through, turns around and looks at me in, the, in his little Sicilian brogue, and makes the comment. He says, "You know." 122 caliber round behind the right ear solves a lot of problems. And I'm like, I bet it does. <laughs> and I mean, I ran across Christian David, who was the one of the masterminds in, in the French Connection. Of course, Leonard Peltier was there. He's nothing like the media portrays him to be. He's more self-absorbed in the legend of Leonard Peltier than he is anything else. Randy Lanier, the race car driver turned drug smuggler. Yori Cole, the son of uh, Gordon Cole, who killed the two U.S. Marshals in North Dakota, I believe it was, as part of the Posse Comitatus group up there. So, I mean, yeah, we've we've had our fair share of, of individuals. Uh, Rene Verdugo was the uh, guy that the, the Drug Enforcement Agency kidnapped in Guadalajara, Mexico, and threw him underneath the fence at the border. And he was tried for the uh, murder of uh, DEA agent Kiki Camarena. He was there. And, I mean, then you're just regular, all of the hierarchy of the Aryan Brotherhood, 
several members of the hierarchy of the Nation of Islam. They were all there. They were all part of our gated community, I guess you could say. Did you ever feel in, in serious danger at, at any point in your career? There were a couple of times that, that I really kind of thought to myself, what did I get myself into? And, and right out of the chute, when I first became a correctional specialist at the U.S. military prison of Fort Leavenworth, I had an inmate by the name of McCray jump up in a dining room one morning, and, and through our exchange together, he wound up stabbing me. Ugh. I was kind of like thinking to myself, hmm, that's kind of an interesting way to start a career. <laughs> and, and I went on to the, the, from there to the Kansas State Penitentiary, and I worked for the Kansas State Penitentiary for a little over a year, and I had had an interview with a federal prison prior to going to work for the Kansas State Penitentiary, and during the course of the interview, they told me, they said, well, you know, we would hire you immediately, but this is what we want you to do. We want you to get out of the military, grow your hair, do away with the military-style mustache that you have, and grow a full mustache to where you look older, and come back and see us in a year, Out of, and we recommend you go to work for the Kansas State Penitentiary. So I went out there. Well, I'm in the dining room one day, and... I'm standing probably 10, 15 feet away from the shift captain, and I look up, and it's July. And, I mean, if you've been in the Midwest in July, it could be a bit steamy here. And I look up, and here comes this guy walking into the dining room with a winter coat on. Well, the first thing that rolls through my head is, is there's nothing good comes out of a guy in a winter coat in July. So I reach up and walk over to the captain, and just as soon as I tug on the captain's shoulder or tug on his shirt sleeve and told him, hey, he turned around, looked, this guy drops a, most everybody knows what a paper cutter, a manual paper cutter is. It's a board with an arm, cutting arm. He drops the cutting arm out of the sleeve of the coat and comes down on the head of a guy sitting with his back to him in the dining room full of inmates and literally just comes within inches of totally decapitating the guy. You know, while we're headed in that direction, the inmate that was sitting across from the guy reached over and grabbed his tray and took his food and dumped it on his plate and just tossed the tray back over on the table where the dead guy was sitting. Whoa. Yeah, and it, I mean, probably, aside from the stabbing, the most harrowing thing that, that I've ever endured probably was... Thanksgiving Day of 82, we had just opened up the cell houses for Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm standing on the street, the Kansas State Penitentiary, all of the cell houses open up into a street area on the outside, and this guy comes out of a cell house, and I just happen to be looking at this guy, and a guy comes out behind him and uh, stabs this guy in the back. Well, he hits him in the back of the neck, and as he hits him in the back of the neck, he grabs him alongside the neck, and this guy had fashioned a homemade weapon into what would be best described as a prison-made Rambo knife that's serrated on the back side and literally almost decapitates this guy. Well, he's dead before he ever hits the ground, and this guy looks up and he sees me, and he starts towards me with his knife. And I've got locked doors everywhere with not a key to get into anywhere. 
and I get on the radio and tell them I need assistance. Well, the whole time that this is going on, there's a tower right above the yard, and the tower officer is seeing everything that's going on, knows that this inmate's advancing on me, and he's up there trying to get the windows open. Well, KSP at that time, it was an older institution built in the 1870s, so the windows are sticking, and just out of the blue, I'm concentrating on this guy, and just out of the blue, the officer by the name of Jake Moppin reaches up, can't get the windows open, so he does the next best thing that he can, grabs a shotgun and blows the windows open. And if you don't think that won't break your concentration, <laughs> the inmate dropped the weapon and took off down the uh, street towards the recreation yard. And Jake reached over, grabbed a uh, Mini-14, and sent around downrange. And about the time he pulled the trigger, the inmate turned the corner onto the recreation yard. And we finally went down and got him off the recreation yard, took him into custody with no no further issues. And then I went to the Fed, and I thought I'd had it bad at the state penitentiary on some occasions. And the, the federal prison at Leavenworth was... All it was built that, that it was, it, it it was literally a place that rock and rolled on most occasions. The inmates were not afraid to kill each other. Fights were common. We had, between 1983 and 1985, we had like 18 homicides inside the walls of the institution. And, uh, I mean, it was, it, it was downright wild and... They assaulted several staff when I first started to work there, and, and the most notable killing that I was involved with was, uh, and I'm sure you've probably either done a show or heard the name, Felix Mitchell. He was the drug lord out of Oakland, California, that was sentenced to Leavenworth, and long story short, he got to Leavenworth, went down to the Morris Science Temple meeting, and told the guy, every institution has a shot caller. No matter what the hierarchy is in the institution, there's always one guy that, before anything's done in the institution, it's passed through. And it's to make sure that, you know, okay, if the Aryan Brotherhood's going to kill this guy, let's make sure that the Nation of Islam, we're not stepping on their toes. Let's make sure that we're not stepping on these guys' toes. And most of the time, they'll tell them, nah, we don't care about that guy. Go ahead and do what you got to do. Well, the story goes that Felix Mitchell went down to the Nation of Islam and told him that their days of running the institution was over with, uh, disrespected the shot caller in the institution, and he decided to send two people calling on him, and they 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 did a number on him. He was he came in, do his daily routine, took a shower. He worked in the dining room in the early morning hours from there till noon. Came in, took a shower. Went jumped in bed to take a nap, and the two guys rolled in on him, and when he jumped off the bed, literally the first knife stab is what literally would kill him because he wound up straddling uh, one of the knives as he jumped off the top bunk of the bed, and it severed the femoral artery. And I was part of the responding staff, and we picked him up, and we're talking minutes from when the incident first occurred, we're talking literally minutes, and, I mean, there's blood everywhere. We could just go on a stretcher, get him to the hospital, 
And, you know, because when I'm, I'm, I'm one of the more senior staff at this point in time, I start stripping the inmate and bagging his clothes for evidence, looking at stab wounds and, and notating stab wounds and, and, and stuff like that. And, I mean, he's already dropping, you know, the blood tries to stop itself from bleeding out by coagulating and, and clotting, and he's dropping blood clots almost the size of softballs. So, I mean, it, it's, and I mean, I could go on and on and on for the next five hours and tell you things that went on in my career that that <laughs> probably have your, probably send your ratings a little bit high. <laughs> <laughs> Higher than they are now, probably. Well, you've definitely given us a taste of some of the more interesting experiences that you've had. Yeah, it's, working a prison is one of those things, particularly one like Leavenworth at that period in time. Uh, they'd been 2005, they changed the security level to Leavenworth, and it's now a medium custody facility. Uh, but when it was, when it was in its heyday, it was a rocking and rolling institution. They, they, everybody knew about Leavenworth and everybody knew about Leavenworth's reputation and, and so on and so forth. And, and I always tell people that the greatest invention of the, the whatever century it was invented uh, was air conditioning. When they installed air conditioning in, in Leavenworth during a massive remodeling of the institution back in the 1990s, when they uh, installed air conditioning, the whole temperament of that institution changed overnight. Wow. Huh. This is, so this has been really fascinating. Um, so for people who want to know more about you and your, your books, where can they go? The book is available through the publishing company, uh, Arcadia Publishing. It's also available through all of your on, online retailers, uh, Amazon, Borders Books, Barnes & Noble. If you want to pass along my email address, uh, people can buy them directly from me. Uh, I autograph them and personalize them uh, before I ship them out. And my email address is a real hard one to remember. It's KennethLamaster at Yahoo.com. And... I always remind people that I'm the only one that spells Lamaster right. It's L-A, not L-E. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. This has just been great. Well, I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. And, and from the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking the time out on Easter Sunday to do this. Absolutely not a problem. Thank you again. Again, I have been speaking to Kenneth Lamaster. He is the author of Leavenworth 7, The Deadly 1931 Prison Break. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. And it's never been more important. Have a safe today and a safe tomorrow.